Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. The topic today is Paragon Critical Care, and we have two guests with us. The first is Diane C. Byram, uh, FCCM. She is a nurse and is the current chair of the Paragon Committee and a Paragon Coach. She's a critical care nurse specialist at Presbyterian Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina, serving on the Rapid Response, Sepsis Best Practice, and Magnet Steering Committees. Our other guest is Dr. Ivor Douglas. He is the chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Denver Health Medical Center and the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit there. Uh, he's actually pretty well known to many of us in terms of his uh, both basic science and clinical research issues um, in the area of critical care. He's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center and is co-chair of the Medical Center's Critical Care Committee. He is a Paragon coach and serves as a team leader for Presbyterian Hospital Paragon program. Um, just to give a little bit of background on Paragon, it is a quality-focused program that aims to help hospitals look at their systems of critical care delivery and design tailored improvement strategies to close gaps. Using a combination of strategies including self-assessment, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching, the Paragon team has helped hospitals achieve marked results in areas such as initiating multi-professional rounds, developing comprehensive quality metrics, reducing ventilator-associated pneumonia, and implementing sepsis bundles. Thank you both for joining me today. Um, Dr. Douglas, uh, I guess we'll start with you. Uh, I understand that in 2008 and 2009, your team worked with Presbyterian Hospital, and I guess if you could say where, Presbyterian Hospital where, um, you implemented uh, three major areas that are written here, and I'll let you expand upon that, including implementation of multi-professional rounds, reduction in ventilator hours, and integration of the surviving sepsis campaign bundles into the emergency department. And I'll let you sort of take it from there. Richard, thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. This is a real, a real privilege. And I know that Diane will join me in sharing our enthusiasm and excitement for the experiences we had through Paragon. The experience uh, presented itself as uh, one which was unusual in that visiting at the Presbyterian site was one uh, where, on the surface of it, really, this was a very high-performing environment at baseline. Uh, a hospital that was in the process of uh, targeting magnet status for its nursing staff, an ICU that uh, had high volume with a dedicated group of very highly experienced intensivists, and really was looking for opportunities uh, in which external mentorship and career coaching, uh, as well as systems analysis, might uh, further move the dot for the entire organization, but specifically for the integrated critical care program. And our approach uh, coming from the Denver Health team was uh, very much one both of uh, providing that mentorship as well as learning from the experience in that it, our, we had decided ahead of time to use the platform to test the effect of a series of performance improvement uh, principles and strategies that coherently are often termed Toyota Lean implementation. And um, in our 
reading the literature, there had been virtually no description of this type of intervention in organized complex care environments in healthcare. Certainly there's fairly extensive uptake of Toyota principles in other aspects of production for hospitals, including sterile preparation, OR flow, uh, and other aspects. But for the management and performance improvement aspects of critical care, it was our sense that this may reflect a, a unique learning laboratory, both for ourselves and our colleagues, partners at uh, Presbyterian. And so, yes, you're correct. We had, um, uh, with our colleagues, done a lot of preparatory work using the ICU tool to track their baseline performance, their uh, partner buy-in by their healthcare providers, their perceptions of uh, collaboration, and identify gaps and potential areas of high impact. Um, that period of preparation, which is very typical for all of the Paragon interventions, takes some many months, involves a fairly intensive analytic process and a period of pre-review between the coaches and the sites by a series of phone calls. And then the consequence of that is a site visit. Um, we had decided with our colleagues to target a two-day site visit, although in retrospect I think that that probably was on the short end for this particular initiation. And we had uh, determined with them that we would conduct a series of self-analyses, uh, broadly termed a value stream analysis. And the value stream analysis was uh, focused on three of the major functional aspects, which was ED to ICU flow, collegiality and communication in the ICU itself, and then aspects of the team, which were fairly broad, but included things like nurse retention, engagement by respiratory therapists, communication and collegiality between practitioners of different specialties of the multiprofessional team in the ICU. And we used as the framework for this the evaluation management and care of a septic patient. So that was the linearized strategy. And so just as a follow-up to that, that was very helpful. It was very, very helpful. And in terms of what seems interesting to me is figuring out for a particular hospital, sort of, I would imagine you, uh, before you even do your site visits, sort of deciding what you think the goals could be for that hospital in terms of what, where you think, how far they could possibly move forward. You know, um, I, we, we, we assumed a far less prescriptive approach than that, and I acknowledge that it would seem to make sense to go into one of these two-day events knowing exactly what the outcome was, and our approach was a little different. We actually, uh, you, through a process of mentored uh, uh, discussion uh, with a lot of very active feedback, challenged the, the Presbyterian team itself to identify its gaps, its objectives, and we actually held them to a ser defining a series of very three hard three metrics related to uh, outcomes on mechanical ventilation, nurse turnover and retention, uh, and then some cost issues. Um, so there were real hard dollar savings and human resource uh, potentials on the upside. But we were not prescriptive in those other than to help them define for themselves the gap. Before I switch over to you, Diane, um, I know that there's been recent literature saying, you know, not even, there are many ICUs that may not even have directors. And I would think, 
I guess it was a little bit easier here because Diane could help sort of help you figure out who the people you needed to speak with were. But I, I would imagine as a big picture issue, that could be a great challenge given organizational issues around critical care, right? I think that's exactly right. And uh, Diane will uh, make comment to this in a moment is that despite much enthusiasm, the, the environment of Presbyterian when we engaged was highly fractured. Uh, it was very difficult to get all of the people that we needed together in the same room for even one of our meetings. We did actually meet with everybody, but uh, our classic approach for conducting value stream analysis is to have all the people who help make decisions at the table for the period of the two days. So we had to be fairly flexible and dynamic ourselves, and I must be honest with you that that was a major challenge for our team, who are very much are comfortable managing, running value stream analyses, conducting what are termed rapid improvement events, the intervention arm of Toyota Lean Intervent Strategies. But uh, Diane, you maybe you could reflect on what that experience was like as the consumer of the experience. Well, let me pass it over to you. Um, thank you, Dr. Douglas. I would have to say that, that the experience itself was probably one of the better experiences I've ever had. Um, that might be biased by the fact that I believe in Paragon and that I already serve as a Paragon coach. You know, it's very difficult for you to admit that you have problems, and we knew we had problems, and I think we knew that we needed someone to help us. We, we had tried to work on those problems before and, and just were not very successful. Um, you know, I agree with Dr. Douglas that when the team first came in, probably the first hour of the because they tried to condense probably a whole course of what is lean down into the first hour of the presentation. And I have to admit, when I looked around the room and probably looked at myself, there was a deer-in-the-headlight sort of look about what in the world is going on here. But they're very good at what they do. So it didn't take them very long for people to become engaged and say, oh, this makes sense. You know, we, we could do this. We could work through this. Do you want to talk about a little bit about your hospital structure just before we talk a little bit about okay. it in terms of how big okay. residents are not, teaching or not, just to, right. so that for the listeners? Um, Presbyterian Hospital is located in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we are located about a mile from a level one trauma center. Um, so a lot of competition in the city for um, beds and people, but there's plenty to go around. Um, Presbyterian is a um, 500 bed plus, probably a little more than 500 beds non-teaching. Um, we have a 15-bed unit. We have 13 in board-certified intensivists that rotate through that unit, as well as our satellite hospitals. We have two satellite hospitals that have a critical care unit, and we have a neuro-intensive care and a cardiac-intensive care. So, so how many total critical care beds? Um, um, we probably have 40 total okay. critical care beds. And you said you had 15 intensivists? 15, 13. 13 intensivists. And um, is it a 24-7 model or not? 24-7 model closed unit. And so, again, naively, I would say that you're already in the top 0.04% of ICUs in this country. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, and I think, you know, you're, I, I would say that's far from naive. That's a, that's a very precise estimate of uh, how challenging on the surface of it, it was to consider going into an environment where we could even deem that we might be helpful. Um, but I think that as Diane reflects on, she's being modest, the, the entire group, uh, with a, per a, a period of quite a lot of in uh, engagement and encouragement, appreciated that even in high-performing environments, uh, when 
waste is the challenge and inefficiency is the uh, opportunity, using the kinds of tools that we brought to the table m certainly were at least perceived to have a, a, a potential benefit. And I think that that is the key point both about healthcare in general but about complex care environments in particular is that we achieve high efficiency but with a tremendous amount of wasteful activity and resource allocation. So let me just jump in because in many of the hospitals, in the, my current job and my last job, the top two issues you discussed, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about. You talked about ER, IC, ED, ICU flow, and you talked about getting, I guess, the clinicians to be nicer to each other. And as you know, I gave the 24-7 talk this year, and that, according to the, one of the recent studies, was the highest incidence of burnout was doctors not being particularly nice to each other. And um, I don't know, could we start with you and then maybe go from there and so what, what you, how you attack the problem? Yeah, so I'm, I, I think that there were some very fascinating dynamics that uh, come to the fore. When, when, when folks in a working environment are encouraged to engage, to discuss process as opposed to content, which is, is we're, we're all very good on rounds about talking about content, but to step away and evaluate the processes of care uh, many of the siloed behaviors which uh, are perpetuated in complex care environments like hospitals rarely can uh, induce a lot of discomfort in people. And I'll give you a very fair example, not specific to Nurse Byram's site, but in general, is the relationships between the emergency medicine providers and ICUs, the ownership for processes and procedures, um, the focus on uh, consultative activities and uh, diagnoses, the timing to interventions. And because uh, the silos are supported by organizational administration, it can be extremely dis disruptive when people come in and challenge from the outside the usual practices that support those silos, such that asking for a patient to be moved out of the emergency room prior to the completion of initial resuscitation, as an example, is sometimes perceived as being very adversarial and very confrontational because that's not, quote, the way it's done here. And yet at the same time, in terms of tightening the connections, improving the communication and linearizing flow such that the patient gets the right care at the right time, a mantra that the society is apt to use, uh, requires that uh, egos are set aside for a while and that uh, combined uh, targets can be identified for care. So Diane, do you want to sort of give your perspective on, on that first issue of what, what the problem was and, and where they thought they could maybe get some traction? Um, we, um, I didn't finish the description of the unit, and I think that will help a little bit too. We have 15 nurse-driven protocols. Um, so the nurses are responsible for electrolyte replacement, for sedation and analgesia, and those are done in conjunction with the physician from a written protocol. So they, they, sort, of, they sort of drive the care of the patient within those parameters. Um, so... Part of the resistance, I think, from the physicians and especially the ER, were they ER doesn't work from protocols. They work from order sets. And so just that little rub, be, you know, we had this, this beautiful, perfect sepsis order set um, or sepsis protocol that we wanted just that we just wanted to hand it to the ED and say, well, can't you use this? And you know, the pushback was, we don't do that down here. 
And so for a long time, there was just that squabble over that. Well, so, so, so I don't even understand what you're saying. I don't <laughs> understand the difference between an order set and a protocol. Okay, protocols are what nurses work off of. Uh -huh. So they don't have orders on them. They have, okay, here your patient came in. They have these things that identify them as maybe early sepsis. So we need to go ahead and get a lactate drawn. We need to get a chest x-ray. We need to do blood cultures, all of those things. Antibiotics get started. It's sort of a, of a diagram so to speak. The order set flows in a different way. That's a physician order set gives you permission to do everything that's on this protocol. But what our physicians in the critical care unit wanted, they didn't want to give them their order set. They said, oh, you just need to use our protocol. Just, just run our protocol and you'll be fine. So what it took was the formation of a sepsis best practice team, a physician champion who said, wait a minute, this is the problem here, although we'd all identified that that was what it was. Here's the problem. Within a month, had written a sepsis order set for the ED. All the ED docs had signed off on it, brought it back to sepsis best practice, and said, hey, we're ready to go. So, well, so I was going to say, so, so how was that? So you just told me a wonderful thing about something getting better, and how was that part of your visit to the yeah, hospital? Yeah, and I think that that's right. And, Diane, that's actually a good place to position it because inevitably when you hear about performance improvement activities, they're perceived as being lots of these PDSA cycles that just spin and then you walk away from them and you get back to where you were before. A lot about the activities that we engage the site with and have continued to work with them from a mentorship perspective is about sustaining improvement. Mm -hmm. And one of the key concepts that is implemented when you look at uh, lean strategies is the development of what are called standard work wedges or standard work uh, processes. These are more than just the piece of paper that's got the guideline on it. It's the, the, mm -hmm. the uh, implementation in a fashion that's durable, robust, and reliable every single time that environment uh, it triggers it. And uh, that opera operationalization step is a lot about what lean does. So how do we get to the notion that there really was a, a requirement? Uh, one of the key things we did was break down to almost an atomic level the steps involved in the uh, in identification, uh, diagnosis, uh, initial therapy, transitions, handoffs of the care of a critically ill patient with sepsis. We used diagrammatic uh, charting and we put up an enormous wall chart that we compressed down for them and showed them how complex the flow was and then developed a series of small testable changes that would linearize or make more simple the flow and get rid of the wasteful steps, the mm -hmm. deficient handoffs, the suboptimal communication opportunities. Now, Inevitably, this requires more than just one visit to a site. Right, that's to do exactly it. what I was going to say. And so, what we had we have hoped to do is to empower the group through a series of subsequent uh, telephone conferences and data feedbacks to become the owners of the process themselves, so that the subsequent iterations of that lean intervention becomes a tool in the hands of the end user. Now, that's a far reach, and I, I think that we would be overstating our achievement to suggest that we somehow magically visit a site once, walk away, and say it's yours. But what was undeniable from this intervention was this, this became the trigger phenomenon, the trigger to go, and that the stop was on the other end. Okay, let me just bring up uh, one other uh, talking point here, and then I think where we'll head towards concluding is something that I was discussing uh, with you, Diane, before is... So a listener at a hospital likes this and, and 
that they want to do this? How, how do they go from there? And we'll let you do that. But there was a talking point here that um, there was an unexpected impact that daily rounds had on palliative care consults. And I thought that seemed uh, very interesting. And maybe if you could talk about a little bit more about that, flesh that out, that would be wonderful. Okay. One of the things that the group from Denver Health identified was that we could do a better coordinated job if we did multidisciplinary rounds. Um, Dr. Douglas will tell you there was a lot of lively discussion around that and some resistance on the part of the physicians who had tried it twice in the past, didn't feel like it was useful, it was a waste of their time, it, it didn't provide them with any added benefit, so didn't see any reason to do it. Um, you know, Dr. Douglas kept reiterating how important multidisciplinary rounds were. If you had a form that you could follow, that you, you every day you would cover the specific things that you needed. He actually shared his form with us. Um, and once we started doing them, it, it, it was really a rocky start. There, were, there was a, you know, a, a sort of a, almost a disconnect between the physician groups. Some of them were okay to try rounds and others didn't want to do it. So it was almost a you know, you had to cheerlead and say, well, let's just try it. Let's just do it one day. Well, can I just, I mean, I'm an intensivist. I want to make sure that what I do as my rounds is what you're talking about as multidisciplinary rounds. So I stand there with my table and the resident and the fellow and the nurse, and we try to get the respiratory therapist, and we go over what happened last night, and we go over all the meds and the hemodynamics, and then we go over fast hug and talk about where we are today and what the plan is for today. That, that's what you're talking yeah. about, I right? I think although it sounds uh, self-evident and that No, it's not at all. I just achievable. wanted to make Make sure. Absolutely. I think this idea that getting to that point where systematically, and not just three days a week or five days a week, but consistently seven days a week, this is the operations of complex multiprofessional care with a tool or checklist that actually drives the process so you never miss the steps is precisely where the group, I think, had identified their, their opportunity. And the difference is we don't have residents. We're, we're a non-teaching. Right, right, right. non-teaching. So we um, pulled in all of our other disciplines who were very much on board, who that was, you know, they had asked for months, can we not do this? We need this information. We have to comb through the chart. So I think, you know, we were able to do that. And in doing that we realize that we have a lot of palliative care patients who get missed, who, who we should start interacting with earlier rather than later. As a result of that, that was always a question that we addressed. Is this a palliative care consult? Sometimes the answer would be not today. Let's, let's talk with the family. We'll talk tomorrow. And then, so what happened from that is because we did that, everybody got on board. All the disciplines were on board. And when we interacted with that family, respiratory was no longer saying, oh, everything's good from my aspect. Or, you know, some other, the nurse wasn't in there saying, well, everything looks okay today. We all were using the same words. Here's what we see. Everybody used the same words. Our palliative care consults went up by 144% in eight months. And our and this this probably sounds kind of morbid, but our actual transfers to hospice or death in the unit as a result of that palliative care consult went up 188 percent. So we not only did good things for our patients and our families, we also streamlined our processes within the unit. So we were not keeping people, you know, sort of supporting them with life support as they see it. 
and it, it wasn't ever going to lead to an eventual outcome that was going to be productive. You know, one of the consequences of this, which uh, I know Nurse Byram is going to be modest <laughs> again about acknowledging, is that one of the major challenges that the unit was experiencing was very high nurse turnover. People getting coming in, costing them a fortune to train and get in the system, and leaving after seven months. We set as an explicit target a reduction, without giving the details. Not only did the team re completely uh, reduce the turnover, they actually increased the retention of staff, but importantly have sustained that out now well over a year beyond the, the intervention, suggesting that there may have been systemic effect of the, uh, of the new approach to uh, systems management and change. So you're changing it to a culture where the nurses want to stay. <laughs> I mean, right. yes. Now, that has real dollar consequences, but more importantly, it has an impact on the, on the perceived culture and the perceived positivity within the environment. That rubs off on patient care. That has a consequence on the way families see the environments as well. And I think what you see, too, is that um, there were many nurses who didn't even know who the dietitian was or who the palliative care person was. If they had never interacted with them, they didn't know. Now they know who they are. They know who the PharmD is. They know who their resources are, and they go to those people and talk with them and discuss patient care issues that weren't ever discussed before. So maybe we could conclude um, by letting you, Diane, talk a little bit about what somebody at a hospital, how they would get this process started and what their expectations might be that they would um, get if they decide to be uh, involved with Paragon Critical Care. Okay, and I'm going to ask Dr. Douglas to jump in if he, if he has something he wants to add. Um, the first process would be an identification of we, we might need some help. Um, if you just called the Society of Critical Care Medicine and, and said, I've heard about this Paragon project, what can I, you know, who can I contact about this? That initial contact would be Laurie Harmon, who would then do um, a, a sort of a review with you of, of what do you think the problems are, you know, what do you think you need from us? And then Laurie requires, as part of this program, whether you're going to, um, if you're going to participate, there must be a senior level administrative support person. Um, and Laurie does all of the talking through that person, all of the negotiating, the, you know, gathering information. If you don't have that person, Laurie will not do the contract it's just that's just a, a the way that we set the program up and the reason is if you're going to endeavor to do this there are going to be things that are going to need to be needed as support and if you don't have the upper level administration support built in you're not gonna probably succeed in your in your endeavors to work with this group. Yep, I think that's spot on. You know, people listening to this podcast will tend to be frontline providers who uh, not frequently have the capacity to uh, raise and escalate concerns or even engage a consulting team to fix those problems. Thus, I think one of the most effective ways is to share this podcast with your manager, go to the SECM website and simply click on the right-hand panel where the Paragon information link is, where the series of case studies, that we, some of which we've spoken about and others are described. Again, evidence and data should drive decisions about external support for these things. And I think there is a growing collective experience in the Paragon approach that would at least make, uh, recommend its consideration to administrators. 
some of this will be uh, prepared for manuscript uh, publication in the future, and no doubt that will uh, further be helpful as you go and speak with your own administrators about the kind of improvements that you want to target for your unit. I had, a, I had a quick question. So how long, so if they are able to escalate it and get proper support, um, how long would a, a Paragon team uh, be involved with a particular healthcare institution? The contract is for a year. Mm -hmm. um, it can be extended beyond that if there are if there are things that we're trying to bring to a closure that we can't just don't have enough time in a year. But it's usually limited to a year, which means that you can reach out to those coaches anytime during that year. There are going to be set up um, scheduled phone conversations to update on progress. And with us, I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking that with Denver Health and with Presbyterian, we really only had about two or three. But we kept in contact by emails or through Laurie to say, this is what we're working on, this is what we're doing. So we didn't necessarily feel the need to reach out to them on a quarterly basis or a monthly basis. But if that hospital who contracts with the Paragon coaching team wishes to do that, it's there and available. It was one of the biggest things that the two of you did was sort of act as, a, I guess, a mediator or, or, like you said, getting the right people in the room. Was that some of the most difficult parts of it? You know, I think it is. I, I would argue one of the other very important things was actually for the coaching team to demonstrate that they were a team. And I, I, I'm going to ask, you know, Nurse Byron to comment on it. We came with a group of five, a physician, a, what a lean coach, a facilitator, who also happens to be an RT from the ICU, a pharmacist, uh, we had backup from our chief uh, nursing manager, and then back home had an additional specialist respiratory therapist who was on our consultative calls. So demonstrating, I think, that here is a coherent way that a multi-professional team works together every day on the processes of critical care makes it an incentivizing experience for the, the coached team to do similarly. Even if you guys happen to be not from the same institution. Even if we're not from the same institution. And I think because we had the opportunity to do pilot sites, that, that was the opportunity to, to sort of mix it up. Could you take a team from a hospital, work together all the time, bring them to a facility, and was this the right mix for us because we were already high-performing? Mm. I served on a team that none of us knew each other, except all of us knew Laurie, and that was it. Um, you know, we met the night before face-to-face, -face. And, and I guess it just you have to make it work, so you sort of work at making yourself appear as you've always worked together and you've always been on the same page. And we were able to do that, and we walked into that hospital the next day, and it was as if we had always worked together. We could almost finish each other's sentences after meeting each other one time. I had one other question, and then I guess we'll head towards the conclusion, but in... in Seeing this as somebody who is very impassioned about critical care and SCCM, and, and I've tried to be very involved myself, it seems like the commitment from the coaches is, is pretty significant. Do you want to each talk about that a little bit? It, it, it doesn't sound like something that one should do unless one is willing to commit. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's true. So I'm going to make some general comments, and then I'll make a couple of personal comments. The, there is no question that, first of all, the coaching position and role is one that uh, – uh, requires a, an engagement and commitment to a reflective practice style. It is, I would think, particularly unhelpful, and I can be very heavy-handed myself, so I sort of get the sense that uh, being able to really do the active listening part of coaching turns out to be key and essential. 
At a personal level, of course, we committed to this project because it was a pilot, and we were really interested to see notionally, more at, a, at an empiric level, whether an intervention in an ICU could make a difference. But you're correct. Uh, we would we'd be interested to see how much enthusiasm there were for future engagements of our team because it was a very, very substantial time commitment, report preparation and uh, feedback sessions. And I would agree. I think that there is a – it has to be something that you're passionate about. It has to be something that you have a, you have a desire to do. You want to help other people. You, you know, I think it's a give and take. I will tell from my experience as being a coach, I learned some things. I learned a lot of things by watching and listening and and just, you know, thinking back to my own hospital experience. You know, we do that too. So how much of it is common? But you do have to listen. You, you have to stop yourself from wanting to give them the answer. You have to listen to them, let them figure out the answer, how they see it, and then you just coach them to come to the right conclusion. Well, I, I remember when I did this last year, and I'm feeling the same way again, is is you, you are teaching people who are used to dealing with high-stress, life-and-death situations and telling them, or <laughs> they've asked you to tell them how they should be changing the way they do it, and the, when you say they, it's a hospital. And there's lots of doctors who may have very strong opinions that what they're doing is just fine and I don't want somebody coming in from the outside talking to me. And, and, and the, the two of you, you have to have the right personality, right, to drop in out of the sky and help move, move things where you feel is forward. Uh, I'm very impressed. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, Richard, uh, the, the compliment is appreciated, but I, I actually think the compliment is actually more to the team that is, is being coached for the following reasons. It requires a tremendous amount of humility to step mm -hmm. away from hard-felt or firmly-felt positions. And for, for a team uh, to uh, come together and start normalizing behavior and start storming to produce things and then you know, really being able to function at an even higher level than they were before uh, really requires a level of professional maturity that uh, clearly the Presbyterian group came to over a period of time. Would you like to make any concluding comments? Well, if I had to say something in conclusion, I would probably say that Paragon mirrors exactly what Society of Critical Care Medicine stands for, that multi-professional team, where we're trying to build a team, and we know from what's out there that's already been published in everybody's literature that if you have a high-functioning team, your outcomes are going to be better because everybody's trying to strive to do the same thing. So Paragon, to me, builds a team around what your problems are. This team's going to come together and fix those things. So, you know, it just it, it goes right along with what we say when we come here to this meeting. We're a multi-professional group all trying to do the same thing and make things better for our patients, improve their outcomes, improve their care, improve their transition to end of life, whatever that is. We're doing that together as a team. Yeah, and again, I want to thank the Society and, and you, Richard, for hosting this discussion. The, the, the opportunity is abundant. Uh, the challenge is, again, that people listening to this are often highly enthusiastic but may not immediately have the capacity to do something but with their enthusiasm. I, I think that sharing the ideas that we are sharing today with those in your organizations who are influential and able to make change could be helpful in, in them understanding what the capacity and potential for this program is. 
Well, we've been speaking today with Nurse Diane Byram and Dr. Ivor Douglas, both current Paragon critical care coaches, and I'm grateful for you here today. Thank Thank you very much. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over four years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program offers hospitals an unparalleled opportunity to benefit from the experiences of peer leaders dedicated to critical care performance improvement. Through the use of engaging tools provided by SCCM and others, Paragon utilizes a combination of self-assessment, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. Hospitals interested in becoming a Paragon participant to positively transform their critical care units should contact Lori Harmon, RRT, MBA, Paragon Critical Care Manager, at 1-847-493-6403 or via email at lharmon at sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.